Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you so much that we can pray for one another. Thank you, Lord, for the new life that you have brought into this world, even in this past week. Uh, thank you for Jan's new grandson, Charlie. Lord, even now, we pray for that family, and we pray for Charlie, that your guardian angel would just protect him and that he would grow in wisdom, in stature, in favor of God and man. We pray for his family. And then for Susie, father who fell, but she's a tough gal, and she's a, she's a soldier of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would continue your healing work as the stitches uh, do their job and as the healing takes place. You are the great physician. We pray for her. We pray for Abraham, Lord, and his family in Afghanistan tonight. Even as at great risk to their own lives, they watched every Sunday the worship services of the orchard. And there is a, now an underground church, small little underground church in Kabul, Afghanistan, that is the orchard. And so we thank you for that ministry there. Lord, we just pray that you would just give us wisdom now as we go through your word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Revelation, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. One thing I failed to mention is I have a long conversation over an hour with the folks that are coordinating on the ground, those of us going to Israel. I don't want to be promoting this, advertising this, however... <coughs> If you're even interested, there's a brochure right up here at this table. It has all the information. There are still a few places left. And the good news is that we are following the itinerary exactly. There is no quarantine for our group going into Israel. Guaranteed, well, guaranteed as of today. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks, but guaranteed as of today. So if you want more information, please uh, contact the church office. See Lori, see Robin, or myself. We'll be happy to uh, help you there. But it's going to be, in my, in my opinion, this will be the best group ever that Robin and I have been with going to Israel. The most strategic time, springtime, the flowers are out, the weather's perfect. It's going to be wonderful. I just have a sense in my spirit that it's something very, very special, very wonderful is going to take place during this trip. So if you're kind of thinking about it, you're not so sure, uh, think again and uh, see if Lord would have you join us on that. Well, um, the questions that we went through last week, one of the questions is what happens the moment you die? And I received a few requests to go over that once again. And so I will tonight very quickly, uh, and then next week I'll have, I'll be sure to incorporate this in your notes. So you don't have to frantically write down the references. But number one, when the saved, when the saved die, when we die, we go directly into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our last breath on earth is our first breath in heaven. Uh, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise to the thief on the cross. You say, well, David, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Well, that was that day. That was the thousand years. And that thief went with him to heaven. Uh, so when a believer dies, they immediately, their soul, their spirit, immediately passes into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5 says, we are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body that is, separated from the body by death and at home with the Lord. 
when Paul wrote that, he was writing to believers on this planet, in this space-time continuum, where there's a past, a present, and a future. And so the moment we die, our soul, our spirit, who really makes us us, goes to heaven. You say, well, where's the body? Well, the body is still here on earth, in the grave, or wherever it may be. But remember now, okay, it's a little tricky, but remember, in heaven there's no time. There's no past, present, and future. And so, we have a glorious new body in heaven where there is no time. The original body, the old body, stays in the grave. The soul goes to be with the Lord in heaven, and the body is buried until the day of resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 um, talks about that. Christians who are dying are said to be with Jesus. That's our soul. That's our spirit. That's what makes us us. Uh, Paul addressed this, and he said that they have fallen asleep with him. That's not uh, limbo. That's not purgatory. Their bodies are still <laughs> here, but their soul and spirit are immediately with the Lord. Paul described a great reunion of our body and soul, and that takes place not at the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is still a ways away, but at the rapture, when we meet Jesus in the air. That could happen tonight. It could happen any time. When Jesus calls his church, his bride, that's us, to meet him in the air. Then we go immediately to be with him, the dead in Christ Christ first, we go in a twinkling of an eye, and our bodies are resurrected at that time. Not everybody's body. Only those that are have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Only those that have accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Now, soul, the spirit, the body are reunited from an earthly perspective. We're in heaven. It's a wonderful place. There is a clear promise of a future bodily resurrection for the believer. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. And... Uh, so uh, we also mentioned that the word cemetery comes from a Greek word meaning sleeping place. That's literally what it means in the original Greek language. And uh, this speaks confidently of our resurrection in him. Uh, so finally, uh, we don't need to know the how of the resurrection. How this is all going to happen as long as we know the who. As long as we know Jesus, we are in good hands. And his plan for us is just Perfect. Once our bodies are raised, we'll be with the Lord Jesus forever. 1 Corinthians 4, 17 said we will be with the Lord forever. Uh, so then in John chapter 14, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's working on that right now. I picture him with his hand on the door of heaven. This is just my picture. That's not what the Bible says. Just my old man idea. And he's looking back at the Father, waiting for the Father to say, Now, son, you can go get your bride. And Jesus lets out a shout. The Bible tells us, Yay! I get to go get my bride! Boom! He comes. We go up. He comes down. What a grand reunion that will be. So, that's just a little, little bit of a reminder there, and I'll have that printed up with you in more detail next week. So, we left off uh, last week. We finished chapter 1. Chapter 1 sets the stage in the book of Revelation for what is to come. Chapter 2 and 3, the curtain rises. And then from chapters 4 all the way through chapter 22, let the play begin. What is going to happen on planet Earth? What is going to happen in heaven? I am so excited. I'm 
ahead of you in preparing for the lessons. I can't wait to get where I've been this last week with you, and that will come, that will come soon. So we did read from the Bible, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 last week, but that was at the closing. Let's read that again and pick up from there. The Bible says, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. Verse 3, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Verse 5, look at how you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the work you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches, but this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So, chapter 2 begins the second section of the book of Revelation. And these are the things that are happening at the time that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, was writing these things down on that barren island of Patmos, where he was a prisoner, and he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He had a private worship service in a very desolate setting. We remember from last week, Jesus gave seven messages to seven churches. This encompasses the chronology of church history. Church the church we read in the book of Acts began in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. That was the birth of the church. After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, after the Holy Spirit then came down upon the believers, the church was born. So, it's the chronology of church history. And these seven messages we met over last week very quickly have a fourfold application. Number one. They're to be applied locally. These are seven local churches in seven different geographical locations. It is the same order that the Roman postman or postwoman would deliver the mail. It's exactly the same order. Number two, they're to be applied ecclesiastically. That's just a fancy word for they address every problem, every challenge, facing the local church then and facing the local church now. We don't need more church growth seminars. We don't need more church growth experts. All we need is God's word. Every issue facing the local church today, whether it is here in the beautiful Fort Valley of Colorado, or whether it is, it is in Lesotho, Africa, check with Randy Stevens for the correct pronunciation of that, whether it is in Afghanistan, wherever it may be, every problem facing the church today is addressed in these seven letters. Every problem. Number three, they are to be applied personally in our own lives. They are to apply to us individually. How do I know? Because every letter to the seven churches ends with these words. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying. 
So if we have ears, then we better listen. He's speaking to us individually. Number four, they are to be applied prophetically. And that tonight and next week we'll wrap it up. The history of the church, amazing things, all the way up to where we are today. And the rest of the time we're talking about what is going to be taking place. So when John wrote these letters at the beginning of the church age, these events had not yet taken place. But today, in the year 2022, uh, many of them have already taken place. So the church at Ephesus refers to the period of church history from the year 33 to 100. Ephesus, uh, as you recall, is about 35 miles from Smyrna. It's the closest of Revelation 7 churches to the island of Patmos, where John wrote uh, the book of Revelation. Ephesus, you historians recall, was the chief city of Asia Minor. Whenever we read the word Asia Minor, usually that's referring to modern-day Turkey. It had an artificial harbor, uh, ships of all sizes come in and out. Uh, at the entrance of the uh, city, there was a valley uh, that reached way into the province, and so the road went down the valley, much like Highway 82. Is that the name of it? Highway, I'm still learning. Highway 82 uh, travels through the uh, Roaring Fork Valley here in Colorado. So it was connected by highways, it was connected by seaways. There is easy to, to go from there. Um, and John wrote uh, this book in the year 97, as you remember. And at, when he did, the church was experiencing a lot of problems. That is not unlike any church you find today. Any church. There's no perfect church. No perfect church. Uh, every church has problems. So the church in this, in this case um, uh, had been compromised to such a degree that it was experiencing all kinds of problems. And Jesus said uh, in verse 5, Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Revelation 2.5. Now, just as we closed on this last week, church history should not be our model. Church history is a bloody, ugly history. I mean, almost all of you know at least something about the Crusades. That's not something we're real proud of. So that should not be our model. The Bible should be our model. Acts, the book of Acts, should be our model. Um, so the Bible says, who should be our guide in the local church? Well, verse 1, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Seven churches. And who is that one? It's Jesus. He holds the seven stars in his hands, demonstrating his power, his authority over local churches and their leaders. Now, Ephesus had become a very successful church by human standards. It was very large. It was popular to go there. It was rather wealthy. Um, uh, but Jesus was reminding him that he is the head of the church, not the board of elders or the board of deacons or the board of trustees. He was the head of the church. Uh, in verse 2 and 3, Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for their hard work and patient endurance. The Bible says we are to study to show ourselves approved of God, a workman or a workwoman that doesn't need to be ashamed of rightly dividing the word of truth. We are to work out our own salvation. The Bible says that doesn't mean we work to attain salvation. We are to work from salvation. We are to work from victory, from the foot of the cross. 
Um, he commends them for examining the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. In other words, standing firm for the truth and identifying false teaching. Is there any false teaching in the Roaring Fork Valley today? Well, we're kind of new here, so you know better than I, but, but uh, Robin and I, after spending 20 years on Maui, there's a lot of false teaching in Maui. There's some weird stuff. People that worship whales. Some just worship the whale of the tail. I mean the tail of the whale. <laughs> some people worship crystals. and It's just weird. All kinds of weird stuff. Um, and this wasn't easy uh, for the church. The city uh, was, uh, was known for their um, deviant sexual practices. They associated with the worship of the goddess Artemis. Uh, but, but the Lord commends them for not tolerating evil people. He commends them for working hard. And, and we, should, we should do the same. But our motive for loving people must not be something that we muster up. Must not be something that we do just because we feel it's the right thing to do. Our motive for loving people must be our love for God. If we don't love God, there's no way we're going to love other people. So, you know, loving God, loving people, loving God comes first. So when we love God, then we will love people. So uh, Jesus and John taught that our love for others is an authentic proof, a realistic proof of our love for God. In John chapter 13 and 1 John chapter 3, Paul once commended the church at Ephesus for their love of God, for their love for God, and their love for people in Ephesians. Later on, when he wrote the book of Ephesians, uh, in, in Ephesians 1.15. But many of the church founders at the church of Ephesus had died. Many of the believers had lost their passion for God. It's kind of like when you meet a brand new Christian. They're so excited, generally speaking. They don't know they're supposed to be circumspect. They don't know they're supposed to be religious. You know, set free. I'm no longer guilty in God's sight when God looks at me. He sees Jesus. I don't understand how it all works. I don't even know John 3.16, but I know that I put my faith in him, that he has saved me. I've given him my life, my heart. I've confessed him as my Lord. And they run around telling everybody what happens about a year later. Do you know what I mean? The, the love begins to cool off, and that's what happened here in Ephesus. They had lost their passion for God. They were a busy church. But they did a lot to help the community. But beware of the barrenness of the busy life. So often I found as an old man, as an old Christian, I feel I need to do this. I need to call this person. I need to be with this person. Do this, do this, do that. And what happens? My personal time with the Lord is shoved aside. And then everything I do is barren. Beware of the barrenness of the busy life. Jesus uh, cursed the fig tree. Why? It had great looking leaves. It had great looking trunk. Great looking branches. But it didn't bear fruit. And if we're going to bear fruit, that must be the fruit of the Spirit. Can we come from Him? So they left their first love in verse 4. Jesus didn't say that they lost their first love. Notice there's a difference there. He didn't say they lost their first love. They left their first love. So He tells the church, turn back to me. Come back. Come back home. Do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches in verse 5. Now the word repent in the original Greek language, the Koine Greek, means to change direction, to turn and go a different direction. Um, 
when Robin and I go on road trips, which we love, we love having spent 20 years on Little Island where I was going around the circle, she's the navigator and I get to drive. I get to drive because I like to drive. And she's the navigator because she's a whole lot smarter than me and she knows where we're going. But sometimes I don't listen to her. Sometimes I say, I say, trust me, Robin. And right then her antenna goes up. Oh, I've heard that before. Trust me. I remember that. And uh, so we ended up off in some dirt roads where we're trying to drive across the state or across the nation. Uh, another person I've learned not to trust is Alexa. Do you have Alexa? I don't trust her. You know? Uh, she, anyway, I don't trust her. So be careful. Beware. She may lead you astray when you're driving. So repent means change direction. So go back to what you were doing when you were passionate about the Lord. He encourages them to remember, repent, and return. Church can have lots of programs, lots of activities. Church can be doctrinally correct, be very correct doctrinally. Many fine points, kind of like a porcupine. Fine theological points, but hard to get close to. Yes? Uh, where exactly is There's a word for that you may have heard from the headless horseman, Ichabod. Ichabod, which means I will remove my spirit from your presence. I will take my Holy Spirit away. Have you ever been in a church where they have the best of the best of everything? The best sound equipment, maybe a smoke machine, maybe strobe lights, maybe a, a very a powerful creature who's just, man, he's just... I don't want to charismatic, not, in, not necessarily in the doctrinal sense, but just his personality. He's a winsome personality, or she, and, and they've got everything going for them. Except if the Holy Spirit were to leave that local church, nobody would know the difference. Because they've got the strobe lights, the smoke machine, the charismatic, winsome personality, um, beautiful music, lots of money, beautiful building, you, you name it, they've got everything. But they don't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been removed. And there are many churches in America today, I believe, that the Holy Spirit has been removed. It's been built by man and it's maintained by man. Uh, does that answer your question? Okay, good. Uh, so, um, the Bible says Jesus in 1 Corinthians, here's your reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, uh, the Bible says Jesus will not stay in a church where there's not true love, because without love, nothing else matters in verse 5. Verse five. You probably memorized this. If I have the gift of prophecy, and if I understood it, all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. In verse 6, Jesus commands the church for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, Nicos in the Greek word means conquest. And laity means people of the church. So conquesting, conquering the people of the church. The Nicolaitans presented themselves to be spiritual leaders. Have you ever met anybody like this? Where they present themselves to have deep spiritual insight, deep spiritual truth. And they tell people what they need to do. I attended a church where nobody was allowed to marry to make any major purchase, like a car or a house or a washing machine, uh, change their jobs without approval from their leader, from their church leader. 
very much like the nickel agents. And there are churches like that here in Colorado. Um, be careful. Be careful. This isn't what the Bible teacher teaches. Paul said, we don't want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into patience and into practice. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. We want to work together with you so that you'll be full of joy. For it is by your own faith that you stand firm. Your own faith. Be careful. I, sometimes I hear people say, David, I sit at the feet of such and such a preacher. I sit at the feet of such and such a teacher. Oh, be careful. Don't sit at anybody's feet. The pastor of this church, Pastor Daniel Self, he is one of the best Bible teachers I have heard in my life. And I've heard a lot. I've heard a lot of preachers because I'm an old man. I've heard a lot. And he is one of the very, very best. But I don't sit at his feet, and neither should you. We sit at the feet of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the, the two trees in the Garden of Eden? Remember that story? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, found in Genesis chapter 2. Eating from the tree of life brought eternal life with God. That's why it was called the tree of life. Uh, eating from the tree of knowledge brought, the, brought realization of good and evil. Before Adam and Eve ate from that tree, everything was good. In fact, everything was perfect. They had no concept of evil. Everything was just perfect. And when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, they disobeyed God's commands. They were driven out of Eden, barred from eating the tree of life. Why? Well, in the new earth, in the new heaven, the millennium that God will bring about, we're going to get into that in great detail. Uh, everyone's going to eat from the tree of life, and we're going to live forever. I love it. The tree of life, and there'll be plenty of food for all of us. And we don't have to wait in line. It's just the way the whole system of heaven is working. It's going to be great. So what did the Ephesians lack? They lacked love. What would they get if they changed their ways? The fruit of the tree of life. It's never too late to come back to God. So next we go to the church of Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last. Who is dead that is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. But they say they are Jews, but they're not. Because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for ten days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Now the church at Smyrna represents the period of time in church history from 100 to 312 AD, obviously. Smyrna is about 35 miles from Ephesus. It's the next stop in the postal circuit, about 49 miles from Pergamum. It was considered to be the port of Asia because it had an ex excellent natural harbor there on the Aegean Sea, the Greek Sea. The word Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. Remember back, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the wise men? This was not too long ago, remember that? It's a fragrance that is released only when it is crushed. 
for those of us going to Israel, we're going to be looking at wine presses, uh, and, and we're going to be looking at a tree that's over 2,000 years old in the Garden of Gethsemane, possibly, possibly, a tree that, me, that Jesus knelt down next to. And right next to that is a wine press, and Jesus talked about his spirit being crushed. But uh, the myrrh, uh, the fragrance comes from when it is crushed, and believers in Smyrna were being crushed. Christians were practicing communion, but as they did, the people in the community, many of them were, were, were accusing them of being cannibals, uh, of drinking the blood of people that they would, they would murder for communion and drinking their blood. These people claimed to be Jews in verse 9, but these people really weren't Jews any more than the people who claimed to be Christians were doing God's will during the Crusades. As you know, they slaughtered hundreds of Jews. It was one of the reasons for the Crusades, to kill the Jews. Therefore, the persecution of Christians was rampant during this time from these so-called Jews and from the Roman government. So they were being attacked by Jews, not every Jew, but by some, and from the Roman government. And the pastor of this church at Ephesus, I'm sorry, at, at Smyrna, at Smyrna, at this time, was a man by the name of Polycarp. You church historians probably remember Polycarp. He was the last man personally discipled by Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be cool when you're preaching to the church? Well, I can remember, brothers and sisters, when I was sitting under the olive tree with Jesus. And Jesus told me, oh man, you can't get another illustration of that. But that was Polycarp. And it, when he was 86 years old, Polycarp was ordered to burn incense at the altar of Caesar in Smyrna. He refused. And so he was sentenced to die at the stake. But when the fire didn't burn him, I don't know why, maybe he's guarding angel, I don't know, but the fire did not burn him. They kept throwing wood on the fire. Josephus talks about this, one of the most respected historians during this time. Other historians, it's very well documented. The fire didn't burn him. So one of the, one of the guards that was just getting tired of guard duty, frustrated, finally picked up a spear, stabbed Polycarp, Polycarp right in, right in the side, pierced his heart, his blood poured out of his body. Put out the fire. Put out the fire. But uh, Polycarp was, was martyred for his faith. And throughout history, we see fires of persecution extinguished by the blood of Christians. Um, this week, uh, fires of persecution. There, uh, there, by my friend, when he did pray about Ibrahim. Uh, three of his close friends were martyred in terrible, unspeakable ways just this last week. So between the years of 100 and 312, there, there, was, there were 10 different Roman empires. 10 different I mean, empires. Emperors, not empires. 10 different Roman emperors. They correspond to the 10 days we just read about in verse 10. They slaughtered about 7 million Christians during this time. Uh, but you, did, you, did you notice that Jesus didn't stop the persecution? Jesus did, didn't heal everyone. He didn't raise everyone from the dead. He didn't make everything right uh, from a physical perspective of everything 
And right now, even though there's persecution going on in North Korea and Afghanistan and other countries around the world, he's not stopping that persecution. He said in verse 10, if you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Now the people of Smyrna, they really understood this letter because Smyrna was famous for its athletic games, very much like the Olympic games that are going on right now. Uh, the winners received a crown. It was just a crown of leaves. Uh, and, and the Bible says, immediately after the rapture, every Christian will stand before Christ to be judged by him. Now, before you go, uh-oh, no. We are perfect in his sight. God sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ. He loves us immensely. The Bible says he can't take his eyes off of us. We are not being judged by our works or by our faith or anything else. The Bible says we are going to be rewarded for our works here in this life. This has nothing to do with salvation because only the Christians will be there. How do I know? The Bible tells me so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. The Bible says there will be five crowns, different crowns, reserved for Christians who are obedient to his calling. The crown of life. The crown of life. It's the martyr's crown. Like Abraham's friends. Given to those who have suffered much, yet endured with a sweet Christian spirit, even unto death. Revelation 2.10. The incorruptible crown is the next crown. The victor's crown is given to those who forsake the pleasures of this world in order to serve Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 25. The crown of glory, also called the elder's crown, is given to those who have given their lives to the teaching of the Bible. That is not pastors, is not seminary professors, it's anyone who has given their lives to share what they've been learning from the Word of God. Maybe calling someone up, maybe writing a note to somebody, Ooh, here's what I was reading this morning from God's Word. This is what I found out in the book of Proverbs. Man, I was even reading the book of Ecclesiastes today. I've never read that book, but look what I found. I want to pass it on to you. That's who's going to be receiving these incorruptible crowns, the crowns of glory. Then the crown of righteousness is given to those who look forward to Jesus Christ's return and live accordingly. 2 Timothy 4, 8. Not just, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. But those who live expecting his return and let others see the joy of the Lord in them, the peace that passes all understanding. And then finally, the fifth crown, the crown of rejoicing, also called the soul winner's crown. It's given to those who have given themselves to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 through 20. So, David, what is the second death we read about in verse 11? Well, believers and unbelievers, we all experience a physical death. At one point in time, we are all going to die. Unbelievers will be resurrected at the end of the millennium, at the end of the thousand years when Jesus rules and reigns on planet Earth. But we will be resurrected to eternal life when we meet him in the clouds. So, uh, those that... that we're resurrected at the end of the millennium, called the Great White Throne Judgment. We'll get to it in Revelation 20 in detail. 
They stand there because they have failed to believe on the Lord. They have refused to accept God's payment for their sins, and they will be condemned to hell. Not a popular teaching. That's what the Bible says. It's what the Bible says. But for those who remain faithful, like the church at Smyrna, the second death will not be an issue. It will have no effect. Here's how I remember it. Those who are born only once die twice. Their physical death in this life, it could be cancer, it could be heart attack, it could be an accident, any number of reasons. Those who are born only once die twice. They die a physical death on planet Earth, and then they die again when they go before God at the great white throne judgment. That's not us. We won't be there. Those who are born twice die only once. That is the, that includes us in this room. We were born physically. You remember your birthday. I was born in 1892, so I remember the year I was born. <laughs> My birthday, almost. <laughs> we remember our birthday, physical birth. But then we have a spiritual birth. Do you remember the day when you were born again? Do you remember the day when you asked Jesus into your heart? If you don't remember the day, that's okay because God does. And your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life that very day. So, those who are born only once die twice. But those who are born twice, born again, they only die once. The physical death, that's it. Let's go on to the Church of Pergamon. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Write this letter to the angel of the Church of Pergamon. This is the message from the one with this sharp, two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balaam how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Verse 16, repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on this stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Now the city of Pergamum was a very sophisticated city. It was, it was built on a, on a hill over a thousand feet among the, above the uh, countryside down below. It's located about 49 miles from Smyrna and about 38 miles from Thyatira, so we continue down the postal route. It was the center of, of Greek culture, uh, education. It was known for its university. In fact, it had a, a library with 200,000 books. Yes, they had books at this time. 200,000 books in the library. And the library of Pergamon was so highly regarded that when Mark Antony, remember Mark Antony and Cleopatra? Remember her? When they, when they uh, got married, he gave to her the entire library at the book of Pergamum. Now, some guys give a bouquet of flowers, or some guys give a, you know, a nice little keepsake. He gave her 200,000 books. 
uh, so pretty nice gift. Uh, the city's ch uh, chief god was a god by the name of Asipus, and uh, Asipus, whose symbol was a was a serpent, he was considered the god of healing, and people came from all over the world to be healed. The university taught medicine there, and according to Greek mythology, Pergamum was the birthplace of Zeus, and. So this is why we read in verse 13, we just read, where Satan has his throne. Literally, it was a throne. A 150-foot-high structure in the middle of the city, dedicated to Zeus, and it was higher than anything else in the city. No matter where you were, you looked up and you saw this 155-150-foot-high structure dedicated to Zeus. In verse 13, we read about Antipas. Antipas was a Christian physician. There were a number of physicians in Pergamum, but he happened to be a Christian physician because he didn't recognize Asimus, the serpent god of healing, uh, and he didn't bow down to Zeus. Antipas was fried to death. He was baked alive. So many Christians died during this time. Now, the Greek prefix per from Pergamum means objectionable. And gamum means marriage. So pergamum means objectionable marriage. Uh, this describes the next uh, phase of church history from the years 312 to the year 600. In 322, you historians remember, uh, Emperor Constantine concluded that if he converted to Christianity, then Christians would join his army. He was in a fight for his life, and the balance of power was, was in the balance, and power is in the balance. And so if he thought, if I could just get all the Christians to join my army, I'll, I'll be doing good. So I think, he said, I think I'll become a Christian. So he issued the famous, the famous edict of, of uh, toleration, which prohibited the, Christian, the persecution of Christians. The Christians said, yay, look at it, man. Wonderful. This is great. And Christianity, in addition, became the official religion of Rome. It was sanctioned, it was authorized, it was emphasized, it was endorsed by the government of Rome. All Roman babies were legally required to be baptized into the Christian faith. Wow. What if there was an edict from Washington, D.C.? From our capital and say, everybody must be a Christian, everybody must be baptized. Well, wait, hold on there. But Constantine also compromised to pagan priests. Politics has been defined, and I apologize to any of you politicians that may be here tonight, but politics has been defined as the fine art of compromise. I think it's a pretty good definition. Compromising. This objectionable marriage between the pagans and the Christians was illustrated in the legal coins that were issued during that day, which had Christian symbols on one side of the coin, and on the other side of the coin, pagan symbols. You can see that today. You can see photos. You go online and see that. When we go to Israel, we'll see samples of this. So from the year 313 to, to, the, year five, to the year 600, the church and the state join forces in an objectionable marriage, an unholy matrimony, 
if you will, and they work together as a political power. And as a result, the church began a downward spiral. Some of you are old enough to remember uh, Dr. Jerry Falwell uh, and the Moral Majority. I was actively involved in promoting the Moral Majority. And at that time in my life, uh, I was younger and more naive. <laughs> at that time in my life, I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if our nation had a Christian Congress, Christian House, Christian Senate, Christian Supreme Court, Christian President and Vice President, and every member of the cabinet were born again, spirit-filled Christians, this would be wonderful. It has never worked. Never. And we are going to see a classic example here. History proves that the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it is compromised with political ideology, when the church and politics get in bed together, it never works. We must keep our focus not on the government, but on this kingdom. We must keep our focus on Jesus Christ and his kingdom to which we are all citizens. Two of my close friends years ago, although I've lost touch with them to a certain extent, one was a Democrat, one was a Republican. One was tall, one was short. One was talkative, one was quiet. One was conservative, one was liberal. One was the son of the president of the Assembly of God denomination. One was very active in the conservative Baptist denomination. They were as different as night and day. Politically, uh, ideologically, they were different. But they put all those differences aside and they came together at the foot of the cross and they recorded four record albums singing gospel songs. They're great singers. Gospel songs and patriotic hymns. Even hymns that might be politically incorrect today, like awkward Christian soldiers. <laughs> Wonderful singers. Oh, I failed to tell you. One, at that time, was the Attorney General of the state of Missouri. He went on to become the Governor of Missouri, and then he went on to become the Attorney General of the United States of America. His name was John Ashcroft. One, you may have heard of him, you remember him. The other was a U.S. Circuit Court judge, just one step down from being a member of the United States Supreme Court. They were different in so many ways, but they came together at the foot of the cross, and I had the privilege of speaking at a number of big dinners in different communities across the country where they provided the music. That was before he was the Attorney General of the United States, before he was governor. He was just the Attorney General of the state of Missouri. But what a wonderful thing. The emphasis was not on politics. The emphasis was not on a political party or a political ideology. The emphasis was on Jesus Christ. And we saw many people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ all across the nation during those times. When the church and politics get in bed, get in bed together, bad things happen. Do you remember the story of Balaam in Numbers chapter 22? Remember Balaam? Um, uh, when Balaam was asked by the Moabite king, Balak, to uh, curse the people of Israel, God told Balaam, don't go, don't do it. But Balaam went anyway. And after he had a short oh, discussion with the donkey, remember that, that little visit with the donkey? He ended up on a mountain overlooking the Israelites 
that King Balak, Balak wanted him to curse for political reasons. And be, because Balaam failed to curse him for political reasons, he came up with an alternate plan. He told King Balak, if your women seduce the Israelite men, they can introduce idol worship to them, which will bring a curse upon all of Israel. And you'll get what you want. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 22. Just like Pergamum, an objectionable marriage with the world. Not only did the church in Pergamum embrace the marriage uh, of the church and the state, they had embraced the Nicolaitans. We talked about the religious leaders who told the people what to do, where to go, how to live. Uh, they were rulers over them. Verse 15. So how do we know who's who or what's what in the world susceptible to what Pergamum embraced? Simply, simply stay focused on the Bible. That's all we need to do. Stay focused on the Bible, the Word of God, and stay focused on the God of the Word. It's one thing to know the Word of God. It's another thing to know the God of the Word. It's all about Jesus. And we are citizens in His kingdom right now. Not after we die. Not during the millennium, although we will be, but right now. We are citizens of His kingdom. Stay focused. The Bible says where the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than, it, than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our inmost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before His eyes. And He is the one to whom we are all accountable. Now the Lord also promised hidden manna and a white stone and a new name to those who didn't compromise with the objectionable marriage of the world. The manna that had been, uh, this manna that had been hidden away in heaven that we read about in verse 17 refers to the spiritual nourishment that believers will receive. You remember the Israelites, they received manna from heaven for their physical nourishment in Exodus chapter 13. You can read about that. Jesus, the bread of life, John chapter 6, provides spiritual nourishment that satisfies our deepest hunger. He meets our every need. The secret ballot that we read about here, the secret ballot of John's day was a stone. A black stone, if it was presented, meant the answer was no. A white stone, when it was presented, meant the answer of yes. So Jesus was saying, if you don't compromise in an objectionable marriage like Pergamum with the world, I'll give you a white stone in verse 17, which means you're not guilty. You are not guilty. You're righteous. You're free. And finally, in verse 17, Jesus said you'll get a new name. A new name to those who don't compromise in an, in an objectionable marriage with the world. The Bible says a person's name stands for their character. Do you know what your name means? If you don't, go online, look it up. There's all kinds of tools there. You can find out what the meaning of your name is, whether it's a German or Swiss or Spanish or whatever it might be. French, English, whatever, whatever it may be. We're given a new name. A new name means we have a new character. It doesn't follow the old, but it takes place of, and it's different from the old. The Bible says uh, in Isaiah 62, you'll be given a new name by the Lord's own mouth. And Isaiah said in Isaiah 65, the sovereign Lord will call his true servants by another name. We have a new name written down in glory. I don't know what it is, but it's a new name. It's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and with that new name is a new character. And our new character will be that of Jesus. So if we stay true to His Word, God will bless us with the uh, 
manna of salvation with the white stone of acquittal and approval and a new name written down in glory. Time goes by too fast. I wanted to get through all seven churches tonight. Well, let's not start. We have four minutes. So let's not start. We're not going to finish. But let me give you a little heads up, a little spoiler. Next week, we're going to look at the fourth period of time, which runs from the year 60 AD all the way up through the year 1500. We're going to talk about Martin Luther and the Reformation. Fascinating. Some things that you may not be aware of. Uh, we're we're, we're going to talk about um, another very interesting missionary. We'll tie in with Valentine's Day by the name of Patrick and his life and his mission. And that all, 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 that all ties in to the Church of Thyatira here in Revelation. Uh, it, it, it's, it's an incredible story. So, so we're going to go over that a little bit. And, and then uh, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of other missionaries. Uh, and then bring it up to the present. So thank you for your patience. We'll finish the seven churches next week. Is that okay? Is that all right? If you have any questions, please uh, feel free to ask uh, Pastor Doug or Pastor Daniel. They have all the answers. I should know. <laughs> We'd love to talk with you. Uh, if you haven't received a note, see uh, Lori uh, or Robin. Uh, if you want a brochure for Israel, we have extra brochures up here. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time tonight. Thank you, Lord, that church history corresponds so perfectly with the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And we can learn so much, not only for our own local church, but we can also learn for our own personal lives from these books. Thank you, Father, you've given us ears to hear, and we want to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to us, to our churches, and to the time that we're living in. We look forward to your return. Oh, Lord, we pray, Maranatha, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Next week, I promise, we'll finish the rest of the churches of Revelation and move into things which are to come. Okay? God bless everybody.